Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Sneaky Powerful Podcast. Before I share today's episode, I wanted to request that if you're enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you could leave a review on Apple if you've got the time. It supports visibility, which (laughs) consequentially supports my ability to keep having these conversations. Today's conversation is with my amazing, inspiring friend, Mashid Fashandi Hager. Mashid is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a somatic experiencing practitioner. Originally from Tehran, Iran, Mashid moved to Germany with her family after the Iranian Revolution. After high school, she immigrated to the Kumeyaay territory known as San Diego, California, where she now lives with her husband and two sons. Her professional life includes providing therapeutic services to clients from all walks of life in her private practice. She also volunteers for nonprofit organizations in San Diego that offer resources to new incoming refugees. And she attends somatic experiencing training modules in various capacities. She enjoys supporting SE students. Most recently, Mashid has joined the faculty team at Somatic Experiencing International and will be offering her own training starting in July in Foster City and San Diego and aspires to teach this modality to a broad range of helping professionals. In her free time, Mashid enjoys traveling, hiking, and writing. In this episode, I'm so excited to share She is such an amazing storyteller and warm, kind, inspirational human. Her short story, No Way Back, which is a memoir, is featured in an anthology entitled Shaking the Tree, and it was made into a play produced by the Roustabouts Theatre Company in San Diego. There's so many cool things that we touch on in the interview, including possibility when things feel impossible, courage, representation, and one of my favorite pieces was the essential tradition of storytelling that inspired me to develop a little more intentionally in my own world. So thanks, Mashid, and I hope you all enjoy the episode. Good morning, Mashid. How are you? Hey, Allie. <laughs> and immediately I remembered, how do I pronounce your last name? Hager? Hager. I thought that. So yes, good morning, Mashid. So happy to have you here. So happy to be with you this morning, Allie. Thanks for having me. Yes. I think we have a lot of cool things to talk about. So let's see in our pre-call what, what stood out to me and I want to jump in with is, uh, of course, SE, but you said something about teaching styles and you're on your way to becoming a, well, you already are, I guess, officially faculty. Yeah, I think it's official. It's you're official. not on the faculty track. You're a faculty. Yeah. Hot damn. It's crazy. It is crazy. And I just want to know everything about how you got here, <laughs> but whatever feels pertinent to you and interesting to you and your teaching style, how you bring your flair to um, the SE faculty. Yeah, it's a big conversation, isn't it? I know, exactly. I'm ready for it. I'm here for it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the faculty thing has been sort of like this tiny little candle that I've been tending to. (laughs) 
nurturing and getting the right supports for. And it's been a long, long journey. And I've had the good fortune of many great teachers and mentors along the way that I've learned from. And it's finally happening. Yeah. I mean, like, full on prepping for my trainings mode these next couple of months. And that's really, really exciting. I imagine. Did you know, at what point did you kind of have this sort of spark of, I think I might want to be a trainer. Yeah. You know, there've been, there've been different touch moments uh, along the way. I think one of the first ones was, you know, my SE journey, my SE training was with Steve Hoskinson, who's, I think, a brilliant teacher. And I had learned from Peter. I had gone to different like workshops that he had done and case consoles that he had done while I was in my training. And both of those humans kind of made teaching look, teaching look impossible, you know? <laughs> They're just like so intuitive and like, Steve didn't use an outline. He just kind of like entered the classroom and kind of felt out where everyone was. And then based on people's questions, he kind of designed his teaching day on the moment, in the moment. So it just looked completely impossible. Mm -hmm. And then there's also something about, like about up to that point, I started assisting right away with Steve, Mm -hmm. came into contact with Burns Galloway, who was co-teaching my advanced year and all of the SE teachers I'd had close contact with were male. Right. And this reminds me of why representation matters because oh, yes. in my first year of assisting, first round of assisting, Steve had a family emergency and couldn't teach the intermediate three. And Linda Stelt came in from Canada to teach intermediate three while I was assisting. And that was probably the very first spark where I was like, oh, I think I could do this. She just has such a different style and her style really resonated with me, which is why she's one of my mentors, you know, (laughs) on the faculty track. And yeah, something about Linda's teaching really landed with me and kind of like started the very first curiosity about this. And then I continued assisting and at different points, you know, I've assisted with Joshua a whole lot and he kept putting me in front of the classroom for different reasons. You know, like the very first time we did that, I had just written my story in that Mm -hmm. short story. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were talking about, it was intermediate three and he was going to talk about war, you know, as one of the categories of man-made disasters, human-made disasters. And he said, would you come up and talk about your experience? And I said, yes, before I thought about it. (laughs) You bet. (laughs) And so then that was the other place where it was like, oh, like my teaching could could be very different. You know, could include my story, could include how SE has helped me in that journey. And the feedback from the students of having a first-person account of something they were learning about. Mm-hmm. And again, representation, you know, mm-hmm. was just really potent and really made me think more seriously about, about that whole process. I feel already really touched and teary <laughs> so soon, <laughs> but I am really reconnecting with 
what you said about seeing these teachers and it feeling impossible that Peter and Steve had these skills that are kind of beyond what it would be within my reach. Um, And then the representation piece and then your personal experience, those, those touch so close to my heart because I think seeing people come through so much adversity and then still be amazing, beautiful, successful humans. It helps me remember that I can too. Yeah. Yeah. The simplified version of the the um, representation piece, but the, the felt sense of it, maybe that's what I'm really noticing. The felt sense of seeing it mm-hmm. as opposed to just hoping, seeing it going, oh yeah, I feel that. It's possible. Yes. It's possible. I'm so eager to hear your story and you kind of mentioned some pieces of it. And so your short story, No Way Back, which was also put on the stage with Roustabouts, which is so cool. Does it still ever play or is it kind of something that passed? Is there a way to watch it? <laughs> <laughs> we had, that was one of the like, I don't even know what to call it. it the, the play was supposed to be on stage for two weeks in the fall of 2020 alternating nights with Phil Johnson's play about Roosevelt. And then COVID happened and theaters mm-hmm. closed. And I thought that was the end of that. Like I, I thought, you know, I'm not going to write a play that's, I mean, there's who knows when the theaters will open again. And then Phil Johnson called and said, how's the play coming along? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> the theaters are closed. And he said, oh no, we're going to record it. Oh we're going to record it and stream it for two weeks. I was like, oh my gosh. And that made it possible so that a, a, a you know much wider audience could have access to it. My friends all around the US got to watch it. My family in Germany got to watch it. My family in Iran got to watch it. I mean, it just, it was just one of those crazy silver lining things during a mm-hmm. time that was like, so dark and hard, especially in the in in like the artist communities, like they really suffered during COVID. And so that was just one of those places where I was just like, oh my gosh, look at this. Like (laughs) it was just meant to be a different way. Okay. So I try to capture themes and threads throughout my interviews. And it feels like what I hear already is things that maybe were impossible are possible. Like you have this really (laughs) consistent experience and going back to fleeing Iran Mm -hmm. and you still have family there Mm -hmm. and they're safe. I mean, safe as can be, I suppose, you Mm -hmm. know, there's no immediate danger, but it's an unstable political situation. And the sanctions have been really, really hard on Iran and on on the population. And life there is not easy, but they are not in immediate danger. Like there is no current active wars. There is no, you know. When you and your family left, fled, I've been trying to kind of read more and learn more about that time in history 
because of knowing you, honestly, I, you know, I know it just gave me a real meaningful connection and I knew a little bit about it, but is there, besides your story, no way back, is there, um, what else is a way to learn more about that time? I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of really cheesy examples like Argo, the movie. Oh gosh. (laughs) There's better examples than Argo. (laughs) I'm like, where can I find this? I mean, it's been written about a lot, you know, one of the early books that came out about, I mean, I don't know if it's one of the early ones, but it's, it's one of the ones that I had that I came across kind of early on is, uh, is a book called Persepolis. How do you spell it? P-E-R-S-E-P-O-L-I-S. Okay. And it's by Marjane Satrapi. I can figure it out from there. I appreciate that. That was quick, quick on the research. Good work. (laughs) Um, It's a, it's a, it's, it's like a visual novel. It's, it's black and white comic strip kind of novel, but it's, it's, it covers the same time period of like the revolution and the change and all Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's really good, but there's been, I mean, if you just search for, there's been lots of memoirs, lots of books that people have written about having lived through that time, you know? Yeah. When you think of some of the things that you've pulled over time through that experience, what comes to mind, I guess, right now in this moment? It's really interesting because for a long time, maybe 30 years, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even talk about it. I didn't think about it. You know, my family kind of landed in Germany and it was survival mode on, you know, it was just go, 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 go. You don't stop. You don't talk about it. It's in the past. What's the point in talking about it? We got to move on. We got to focus on the future. All of those things we say to to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We move on. Yeah. So I didn't even, it wasn't a factor in my thought process. Mm -hmm. Not a conscious one anyway, not an explicit one. Mm -hmm. And it actually wasn't until the SE training. I was curious about that. It was like... Oh, there might be something dropped in my body about that. No. <laughs> so you didn't even have symptoms, really? I mean, what are we calling symptoms? I'll I tell was, you I was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was a client of SE before uh-huh. I became a student of SE. Right. And I became a client of SE because life got too overwhelming Mm-hmm. And I could not manage anymore. Yeah. And up until that point, my management strategies were my friends. They helped. And so did I have symptoms? Not really, because I had management strategies. If I just did this and everyone behaved just like that, mm-hmm. then everything would be fine. Mm. <laughs> but then that's gonna you know, hit a lot of people yeah. will get that. <laughs> Right. Right. If I just stay in this tiny little lane and everyone behaves the way they're supposed to, then I won't have any symptoms. 
God. Right? It just feels like layers. Like I think of my right. own experience and I'm like, I, I got out of one layer or kind of, um, I don't know what else to call it, category of that, but I feel like it's more layers. But now I'm at another one where yeah. I'm like, it's it's bigger, like I can tolerate more, but it's still a little bit. Right. And so yes. I remember my dad lost his battle with cancer and passed away. My marriage fell apart. And I was suddenly a grieving single mom of toddlers. Oh. And I was finishing grad school. And I management strategies failed. Yeah. <laughs> they failed big time. Yeah. And so I went back to therapy and, and was introduced to an, a somatic experiencing therapist mm -hmm. and started unpacking. But even then, even in therapy, our escape from Iran didn't come up because they were much more pressing problems. It, it, right. And, and right then yeah. and I yep. needed just I yes. just needed nervous system regulation work. I needed right. to figure out how to titrate. I needed to figure out how to mm -hmm. manage activation. Mm -hmm. And we hadn't gotten to the stuff from the past. Mm -hmm. And then I entered into the SE training. <laughs> and it all came up. What was different after you worked through the the big trauma <laughs> the trauma of fleeing iran is what i consider the big trauma maybe you don't but <laughs> from the outside in i'm like gosh that's gotta be you know it's really interesting one of my favorite things about se is how much work you can do without actually revisiting all of your Think trauma saying SE is sneaky powerful is what I actually it's think is happening like right now. It's kind of sneaky powerful because, you know, I always tell my clients, we're not going to go back and change your history. Your trauma is your trauma, yeah. but your relationship to it is going to change. And so I feel like I never, maybe never is not fair to say, but in those early years of my therapy and my SE training, it wasn't like I did, you know, I went back and recounted everything mm -hmm. and worked through it all, you know, mm -hmm. that trauma kind of integrated as part of this bigger process mm -hmm. of working on my nervous system and getting more regulation on board. And then I think what SE helped me do is access the memories of that event in a way that wasn't overwhelming. Uh -huh. So a lot of my healing around that event came through the process of writing. Yeah, I imagine that makes a lot of sense to me. And being able to titrate and tolerate those pieces that were so overwhelming at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now you're like Wonder Woman with the strength. <laughs> I'll take your image. <laughs> it, it, it popped in. <laughs> it popped in. There was a time when I often tell this story in, in, in the classroom and when I'm thinking about my journey through SE, when I was, there was a time when I was afraid of mountains because we had escaped through the mountains <sighs> and they were scary, you know, and I would avoid them. I wouldn't, I, when I met my current husband, our first 
vacation together was to Mammoth. And I remember having to drive up to the mountain, like my eyes closed. And I told him like, this is super unsettling, but I'll be okay once we're there. I just can't see them in the distance, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I started doing this work and I did SE training and I was working more generally on, on my nervous system and my activation levels. I became a little bit more active. I started walking and I started running and then my knees hurt. And I was like, maybe I start hiking. That's a little bit gentler, you know, on your, on your knees, you're not running on asphalt. And I began hiking and then I was hiking bigger and bigger peaks here around town. And One day I came in like bursting through the door in the morning. I'd gone for a sunrise hike and my husband was sitting there sipping coffee in the morning. And I was like, oh my gosh, this hike I did this morning, you won't believe it. It was so beautiful. Like I saw the sun come up and I was above the clouds and it was all these like pinks and purples. And it just felt like such a spiritual experience. I mean, like I was just oozing joy. And he was, he just looked at me and he went, you don't even remember being afraid of mountains, do you? Oh, and I went, oh, right. Like it had just, it's not like I went to therapy talking yeah. about my yeah, mountain yeah, phobia. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But my relationship to it just had changed. Sneaky, powerful. Sneaky, powerful. That is probably one of the most hopeful stories for me personally, (laughs) as I pursue healing. Wow. That will always, those images will stay with me always. Hmm. Those are like the, my like favorite moments with clients is when they have that moment where they go, yeah, wait, what happened? What did we do? How come I don't think about this the same way? I don't, how come this is not activating anymore? Like what happened? You know, those are my favorite. It's like if the work can be so settled that they've gone through it without much turmoil Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and come out the other end going, oh, I'm different. I'm suddenly realizing I'm different. Yeah. Can't even remember where it got established, but the concept of like kind of magic moments and by magic, I mean, you know, really um, special, meaningful, unique and with SE, a true sort of magic. <laughs> and if any, if throughout this conversation, if any come to you, I would love to hear any specific ones that you think of. You've already shared <laughs> plenty, but that'd be cool. Yeah. So let's see. So, okay. So I had a question earlier and about, well, actually I'll put it this way. So a lot of times I'll have clients or even I will consider why some people heal and and some people don't hmm. and why and I, I get that there's a big spiritual component to that and lots of factors but what do you attribute your healing to as opposed to because I can think of my own healing in different ways I could have gone several times mm-hmm. like I don't really drink very much and I don't smoke cigarettes and like (laughs) that could have been my whole life very easily. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of that comes down to access, you know, what kind of access 
do people have? And I don't just mean like monetary access. That's important, right? Like if I don't have the resources to be in therapy, that's a, that's that's not good. Yeah, right, right. But it's also like access to support, access mm-hmm. to people who can pick up the slack mm-hmm. if you're having an off day, mm-hmm. you know. It's access to mm. nature, clean air and water, mm. you know, access to a good night's sleep, a safe neighborhood, you know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to that. Like, is the environment around us supporting our healing? And again, I think yeah. I have been very privileged and lucky in my trauma healing journey, Hmm. as have my parents been, you know. That's actually really heartening to hear coming from, well, I get, did your, your parents stayed in Germany? Yes. They never, okay. Mm -hmm. So you're the only one that came to the States? I'm the only one of my immediate family. My uncle came to the United States before the Iranian revolution. So he has been here a long, long time. And he's the reason I am here. Hmm. Because I knew I'd, I'd have, if I came, I'd have family. Yeah. That support. Yeah. yeah. Did you move where he was located? Oh, I moved in with him. Oh, good <laughs> uncle. Yeah, he was like a 32-year-old bachelor. And now he had a like a 19-year-old to take care of. <laughs> right? He's like, wait, what? <laughs> We had some fun. I mean, his his age difference with my dad is such that they had more of a father-son relationship than right. brother relationship. And so it made it so that him and I had more of a sibling relationship than an uncle-niece relationship. Yeah, I lived with him for a couple of years. The first couple of years I was here and then... In San Diego, is that where he in was? San yeah. Diego, yeah. And then... I moved out and moved in with roommates and he got engaged and got married and he's still here. He is. I was going to ask, what's his name? His name is Farhad, Mm. but he goes by Tony as it's very common for that generation of Iranian men who came out here uh, back in the seventies to have, you know, have second names that were a little bit easier to pronounce. Right, right, right. Did you ever consider that? I did not. Yours isn't hard, is it? For I uh, to learn my name. <laughs> <laughs> Another Wonder Woman moment. <laughs> I am me. Oh, I am so grateful for Uncle Tony because I can. I I guess it touches me personally. My family has changed since so drastically since my mom's death, and to first of all come to the United States on your own. And anchoring to Uncle Tony, I'm like, wow. But I, I guess I recognize um, how significant that must have been. I can kind of a little bit maybe empathize a little bit. I don't yeah. fly really, so flying to a different country is <laughs> a little like can't connect with that very well. But there's like I often think about like family legacies, you know, precedents. 
Yes. And there's these different stories in my family that set the precedence for me to do this move. You know, mm-hmm. my uncle coming out here was certainly one of them. He was like 16 and a half, 17 years old. He had never even been on an airplane. And he made this move. I mean, my dad supported that and really encouraged it because he knew that that would be life altering in so many ways for him. Mm. And so he came out here like my my grandparents had never been outside of the country and they sent this 17 year old across the world to America by himself. Like, do you think do you think of a spiritual component to that? What do you mean by that? Maybe sort of hero's journey type, mm-hmm. like answering the call is what yeah. keeps coming to mind, that phrase. Yeah. Answering yeah. the call. Yeah. When we do these things that are so, they seem so outrageous. Yeah. And they are, but yet we do them anyway. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's certainly some... But I'm wondering if it's informed. I don't know if I call it a spiritual component. But again, I'm wondering if it's informed by ancestry. You know, like, is there something in the DNA that says you need to go, you know, and then that's the call you answer. That's pretty cool to think about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then my mom is another one. Like she's from this really conservative, conservative town in Iran. One of our prophets is buried in her town and people do pilgrimages to her town. And back in the, you know, late sixties, a single woman lived with her parents until she was married and then she moved to her husband's home. And my mother advocated for herself to move from that small conservative town to the capital of Iran, Tehran, by herself, to get this, live with her uncle Uh so she could go complete this accounting program. Stop it. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that was unheard of in those days. I kind of from have, where she came from, you know. I can feel that. I can yeah. like my body's like kind of chilly, kind of electric. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's lots of stories like that. You know, my mom's cousin finished high school, moved to Paris to get an architecture degree. I mean, there's all these stories of people making these journeys to mm. better their futures. You know. Yeah. So I just, I just fell in that groove. <laughs> yep. It was in, it's in your DNA. <laughs> Does that mean your, your children perhaps will go far? You're like, no. Oh my gosh. I know. When my son went, he went to UC Santa Cruz for college and it was like, somebody ripped my heart out of my chest. <laughs> you know, it was just like, I felt eviscerated Ugh. those first few weeks. Ugh. I kept calling my mom and she kept saying, don't cry to me. <laughs> He's an hour flights away. Seriously. Yeah. I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Tear. Oh, that's the But she reminded me, you know, Mm -hmm. she reminded me of herself, you know, pre-cell phones, pre-social media sending me here. She reminded me of grandmother, you know, 
my grandmother sending my uncle halfway across the world when she had never even left the country. She's like, you can do this. He's an hour flight away. going to be okay. And that landed with you well. You got yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Banana slugs. I, I had a brief stint at UC Santa Cruz. And I think, I don't know if I can, I think Abby Blakesley. Yes, she's an yeah. alumni. Yeah. Had conversations. <laughs> Our little banana slug crew. It's so beautiful up there. Oh, my, ma- mountains, trees, oh, and my ocean. Yeah. 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 Come yeah. on. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about. I was thinking about, you had said journeys to better their futures. And I know that one of the ways you describe yourself is a storyteller. And I I would be interested to hear your interpretation of why stories are so essential. Oh my gosh. I know. I love stories. <laughs> Did you always love stories? I always loved stories. I think that's also a, a cultural piece. You know, I come from a long lineage of storytellers. Mm. My father was a storyteller. Both sets of grandparents are storytellers. Oh. And my aunts, uncles, like there's lots of storytellers in my family. How did everyone tell their stories? And now we're getting into oh. essence recovery stuff because are, are, are the boxes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the boxes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's kind of like what I described in the essence class the other day. It wasn't like specific time was set aside for storytelling. Storytelling was just part of life. Yes. Like, you know, yes. I'd yes. be like helping my grandma in the kitchen or with those painting those boxes and stories would just come pouring out. You know, <sighs> I have all of these memories of family gatherings and either my dad or one of my aunts starts off just telling a story and everybody's mesmerized and gathering around them and listening. Mm. Yeah. I mean, stories are just, just part of life and why stories are important is because they connect us. Mm. You know, the concept is just the concept until someone tells a story that you can relate to. A hundred percent. The relatability. Yeah. yeah. And stories build bridges to the unknown and stories make the unknown a little bit less scary. You know, hmm. I was just, I do this little thing that's just so, so dear to my heart, which is I usher at a local concert venue in town. It's just the thing I do because I love live music and it's my little escape from from the world. And I was just there last night. And one of my usher friends, this older gentleman who, you know, nicest guy, salt of the earth, you know, we have very different backgrounds, obviously. And we have very different political views, obviously. Mm -hmm. And... On the surface, you would it would seem like we have nothing in common. Mm-hmm. And he like cornered me last night to say, I just want to thank you for your friendship. You have no idea what your stories and what you share of your life has meant to me. I would have never been in a situation where I would have found out about all of these things you talk about. Yeah. And I was like... And that's why stories matter. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love him. Yeah. 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 I love that he did that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, stories are super important. And I think in terms of teaching, that's one of my assets, I feel like, is not only my stories, but stories from, you know, about working with with folks and Mm -hmm. I see stories and stories Mm -hmm. about life and Mm -hmm. where we all come from. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, I felt a lot of sadness when I thought about the, I was picturing the time you spent together and the stories with your family growing up and the stories that were part of the fabric of your family, your everyday life. And I felt a lot of sadness as I kind of reflected on, gosh, am I telling my kids stories? Because I I love, love, love getting older. <laughs> Minus like the body aches or whatever. I love, yeah, I have more stories now. And they make much more sense, especially through somatic experiencing. The puzzle sort of fits together in a more coherent way. But they're starting to have some value now, which feels really lovely. Mm-hmm. And I, but but I felt sadness about that sort of time together. And I guess to be kind of generic, you know, with technology, it's changed a lot of that. I I think mm-hmm. for it's, sure. In some ways, it's made stories possible, like this. Yeah. But then I think of my family, and are we sharing the stories? And how do you share your stories with your kids or your family or your friends besides writing? Or in addition, yeah. I mean, and the the writing uh, to a large part came about because I wanted to leave the story behind for my kids because I'm the last person in my family to remember our journey out of Iran. My sisters were too young to remember, and once my dad has passed away, and once my you know once my mom goes, I'm the last person that remembers that journey. And so I really felt the need to put pen to paper and and leave that story behind for the next generation because it's an important one in our Mm -hmm. family legacy. But besides that, yeah, I mean, our current state of this connection we have to our devices Mm -hmm. is... It, it interferes with stories. Mm-hmm. It interferes with stories the way I would want to hear them and tell them. You know, I'm not talking yeah. about the stories that are 50 seconds. 50 uh, yeah, seconds. yeah. <laughs> okay, this is fun. What's your, if you could create like the your favorite way to share a story, what's the, what's the scene? I want to picture it. The scene is, I mean, uh, it has to have a meal. Yeah. After eating. <laughs> we have Love. to be breaking bread. And then it would I would start off telling a story about, you know, how I came to find that recipe and how my grandmother made it and how, you know, my mother adjusted it and how when my great grandmother lived with us, she loved feeding me. And it would be it just be sharing stories, you know. And then you know, I, I am fortunate enough to have met both sets of my grandparents and my great grandmother. And they were all incredible humans. I mean, incredible humans. And some of their stories are just stuff of myth. You know, my great grandmother 
was married off, I think at the age of 12 or 13. No. What? And she like she bore like eight children over the course of her marriage. Like, and they were poor and, and they made it work. And how that happened and how that came to be. I mean, it was just mm. it's stuff that like challenges your imagination, you know. And I, I love sharing those stories, you know, with my kids. And then my my dad passed away when they were young. They were like maybe two or four years old, you know, mm-hmm. when my dad passed away. And I feel like even though they met him, they were so young that they would forget him if I didn't share stories about him. Yeah. So that's really important to me that mm-hmm. they know who their grandpa was and sharing about his business ventures or what things made him giggle or <laughs> when he came here, you know, what things he'd like to do and that he like loved the animal channel and could just like, <laughs> sit there and watch the animal channel all day long, you know, or how like his favorite thing when on vacation was like to eat breakfast and then take another nap. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> So these are so so dear to my heart. Yeah. So stories are a way of like sharing our, our culture, sharing with the boys, with my boys Mm -hmm. about people they haven't met in the family, you know, and getting to know them. Do they receive the stories? I'm thinking I, they, yeah. Did they, you know, I might have a 13 year old that may or may not appreciate my wonderful stories. (laughs) Did it take telling them anyway. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Yeah. <laughs> telling them anyway. Because yes, there is a time where they're like, oh, here goes mom again, you know. Right, right. But then you notice, you notice mm. that the, that it landed. You notice that it primed something for them, you know. Gosh, I'm I'm so in love with this. I think for a lot of reasons, because I think my mom was very she was fantastic at holidays and stories and hers always had a flavor of ridiculousness because she was filled with mischief. But um, I'm thinking of the traditions specifically and that you came here, lived with uncle Tony, and then you created this. Mm. I'm kind of in awe of how you, of th- that you did that. I'm truly in awe. Thank you. Does that make sense to you? That how big that I'm trying is? to receive it yeah. <laughs> without deflecting it. <laughs> well, good job. But I, I guess <laughs> just knowing, knowing maybe because I'm faced with that in my own experience currently mm-hmm. and, and yeah, feeling just so exhausted Mm-hmm. traditions ah. mm-hmm. recipes yeah mm-hmm. yeah but then when there's I'm... definitely been times like that in my life mm-hmm. yeah even times like that in my life this is probably the healthiest I've ever felt and I think yeah. I've progressively gotten healthier and healthier in my life and it doesn't mean that it's a linear process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there are times <laughs> there are events that happen in our world that bring me to my knees to this day, you know, and it's like it, when you're in that state, there is no room for storytelling. There is no room for tradition sharing, you know, there's no yes. room to be as present to all of those things. Yes. But 
my aim is to get back to it. And now mm. more than ever, I know the map. I know how to get back there. Mm. That's a gift that you just shared all of that because again, I connect with that and I feel like, okay, there's possibility. I think I might be able to do that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt. <laughs> so I keep picturing in my mind, it must've been, was it your Easter celebration? You posted a photo of your, the meal you created. Oh, it, it was my new year's table. My Persian New Year table. <laughs> Would it have been in April? It was uh, March 20th. Oh my gosh. I, I was like, wait, what? I know this woman is busy as hell. What? This is gorgeous. Yeah. So one of the traditions that I keep up is our No Ruse Persian New Year celebration, which happens on spring equinox. Okay. And you set this table that have these items on them that symbolize certain things and set the intention for the new year. Mm. And that's another one of those traditions that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I try to tend to and nurture and, mm-hmm. and get my boys to pay attention to and my husband to learn about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm going to go to Essence. I have more questions or interest in that, but... For the sake of time, I'll go to Essence and the Essence Recovery Project that I'm so grateful that I get to participate in. But is there anything that you want to share about? I don't even know if there's a direct question, but just you finding your essence and what that's been like. And I guess it could be evolving, ongoing, but where you are with that today. Oh my goodness. That's an ever-evolving learning process. Absolutely. Which is, I think part of why we did the Essence Recovery Project, Joshua, Sylvain, and I had been thinking about it for a long time. And it seems like the world we live in makes it really hard for us to stay in contact with our essence, with that which is truly us. Yes. And... Our interest is in cultivating practices Mm. that help nurture our essence and help keep us connected with it a little bit more consistently. This feels like a strange question, but it feels like it might be useful. Why is it important to, why why is it useful? I know why for me, but why is it useful for you? It's useful for me because I want to show up in the world as an authentic, embodied human. Yeah. That's what the world needs more of. Yeah. And my essence is a part of that. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to white knuckle through every day Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to fit in or trying to meet expectations or trying to reach goals that aren't coming from the core of my being. Yes. Oof, that got deep. Yes. (laughs) But that's kind of what the idea behind the Essence Recovery Project is, is that we need more humans to walk this earth, more connected to themselves and to their essence. Do you have have any 
any hope of anything. <laughs> I, any hope of a continued human race. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know when this started, but I noticed maybe within the last five years, seeing sort of usually celebrities, but kind of these role models where that's what they were showing up with their essence. And I wouldn't have been able to name it at the time. I'll just tell you. So Freddie Mercury, when I saw the film Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. I was captured mm-hmm. by what I would say his actually like fervent dedication mm-hmm. to his essence. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there are people you are inspired by or where you look to, to like a North star, kind of like your aim with your traditions is to keep them alive. But how about with your essence? Hmm. No one in particular in the like celebrity world comes to mind, but I spend a lot of my career working with kids. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. And some of the people I most admire in terms of being connected to their essence are kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's very authentic. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. Like I recently went to an amusement park with a friend and his kids and, and I was like watching the kids, you know, there was this one kid, we were at the ice cream store and he wasn't ready to leave and his parents were ready to leave. And he was putting up the biggest fight you've ever seen. I mean, (laughs) dad had to come back in and pick him up. And he was kicking and screaming because he wanted ice cream. (laughs) And I was like, that's that kid's essence. It's like he knows what he wants. Mm -hmm. And his life force is like, no, Mm -hmm. give me some ice cream. And it's like, Mm -hmm. on a scale, it's like, it's not revolutionary, you know, but it's like, oh my gosh, what's it like to be that connected? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great visual. We can all connect with with that feeling, or at least we have kids that have done that. Right. And then, you know, when you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, that's, that's essence. You know, it's like, I want to be this one day and I want to be that the other day. And, you know, I want to like, it's so, it's not constrained. It's not limited. It's like multi-layered and it's yep. creative. And in yeah. our recovery group, I was like fascinated when people started sharing, you know, what they wanted to be, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, I was fascinated by how many of those responses were you know, fields that are really creative. Did you, you know? share what you wanted to be? I didn't. I I wanted to be, I mean, when I think about my earliest, earliest, earliest memories, mm-hmm. I think I wanted to be a performer of some sort. Mm-hmm. I remember my mom following me around with a tape recorder <laughs> and I would like sing pop songs and she would record me. <sighs> and then I remember that like, you know, she'd make me take a nap. Oof, nap time. I hated nap time. Hate, I yes. would wait until she'd fall asleep. And then I would like dress up in her clothes and pretend I was on a stage. Like these are like young, young memories. Three, that, maybe four years old. For as much as I know you, which isn't a ton yet, but that feels like your essence. 
<laughs> your mom goes to sleep. You're like, and peace out. Let me put my, let me put your clothes on and get to work. Yeah. 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 I think those were my, my earliest, 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 like cravings was like, yeah. Yeah. I want to be a performer. I remember in high school, I took a theater class mm-hmm. and we did a performance and I remember what that felt like. Like, oh my gosh, like this is tickling a side of me that I don't pay attention to a lot. And then in 2019, I got a chance to be on stage again doing this project with the Anita Casavantes. She's a professor of refugee studies at UC Irvine. And they had this this grant to put an art piece of some sort together. And she knew this man from Iran who left Iran with his families in the 80s. And he's a musician. So he did a like a one person show telling his story and then him and his band played music. And then Anita wrote the play and then wrote some poetry and she wanted people to read the poetry. So she, there were three of us that did the poetry piece to it. So we had one performance at UC San Diego in 2019, October of 2019. And I just remember that whole process just being so enlightening. Yeah. And the night of the performance was just magical. And I was just like on cloud nine. It was so awesome. <laughs> so I like, I do try to like weave that in where I can. I think writing the play was a big part of that. Yeah. You know? And helping with that process and bringing it to stage and bringing it to life was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I like really crave these creative outlets. Are you an Enneagram three? Have you ever done the Enneagram? Yeah, I think I'm a nine, but I'm Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a three. And I, yeah, I get my performance fix. I used to get it as a student in SE trainings. If they ask for volunteers to (laughs) role play. (laughs) Me, me, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But reading poetry, do you sing? I do not. Just when you were little. Yeah, just when I was little <laughs> and quietly because I didn't <laughs> look my mom up. <laughs> I, that's my favorite story. I love it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Let's see. So sensitive to time. I guess it's time to wrap up, even though I could go for hours, but I get to see you Wednesday. So that makes it easier to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think any last thoughts. I, I do tend to try to ask people like what, What are they, how are they staying inspired lately? If there's anything that comes to mind, but you've already shared so many things, we maybe covered it, but any last thoughts, I guess? I I can't think of any. I'm just. You live an inspired life. Like if anyone follows Masheed on Instagram, like I was thinking of just the other day when you took a photo, I don't even know what it was, but where were you the other day where. Oh, I was getting a tattoo. Ah, that too. That too. That too, place. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that. That too, place. Yes. Yeah. How about that? That would be a great way to leave us. I think you said something like it's meaningful for us. What we do on earth is meaningful. Yeah. What we do on earth matters. Yeah. If there's anything you would be willing to add to that, 
I would love to hear it. I just, I don't know if it's age. I don't know if it's SE. I don't know if I'm becoming more embodied. Hmm. I don't know what it is, but I am becoming finally in my 50s more and more aware of my impact in the world Hmm. and really wanting to live in a way that is of service to my fellow humans and the planet. Hmm. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's it. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for spending an hour with me. And you have impacted me greatly already. And I look forward to our future impactful relationships. Me too, Ali. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thanks so much for listening to the Sneaky Powerful podcast. More information for somatic experiencing is available at traumahealing.org. And if you want to look up Sneaky Powerful podcast, it's at sneakypowerful.com. Otherwise, stay well and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.